RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy, as always, that you are with us to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Really, really, really excited about my guest this week. Uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it's We've been doing this almost a year, and uh, and I, I could, I, this guy was a phone call away. He, he you know, is, is a, a good friend and, and a, a huge mentor to me, and and. I almost like I put off interviewing Jody. We're interviewing Jody Hamilton, the masked assassin, who has whose, whose career goes back all the way to 1958, where he headlined Madison Square Garden at the age of 19, and and you know, still involved a little bit in the business, but uh, was involved with WCW and WWE through the 2000s. Anyway, I almost kept making excuses why I put him off, and so this week I decided to give him a call, and I was trying to figure out why. I was putting them off, and I got to be honest with you guys. For the first time since I started doing this, uh, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, he was very instrumental in, uh, in, in, in. Look, let's put it this way, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask him about it, and we'll see what he says. But let's put it this way: he did a favor for a guy named Bob Roop, who I hope to have on the podcast down the road, uh, who's I became friends with in Fort Lauderdale. Most people know my story. Uh, he did a favor for Bob Roop. He could have done favor for two weeks and blew me off. Most 98% of the people in this business to this day would have done very, that, uh, would have done that very thing. Uh, for whatever reason, he not only invited me in and, 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 and with open arms, but he taught me and he, 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 he supported me and, and he, he did this to a lot of guys. Uh, and I hope to talk to him about it, but uh, just uh, really, you know, getting to sit at the what they call the gorilla position. But I'd say no disrespect to the late great gorilla monsoon, but I, 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 I in WCW and and I'd call it the Jody position, and and getting to sit before the matches, even for twenty minutes at the Jody position, uh, was 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 more knowledge than you were going to get from almost anybody else in in the the company at that time. Uh, and, and so many guys got to, uh, got to sit there. I know diamond Dallas page mentioned it in his hall of fame speech. I know bill Goldberg, uh, got to sit. I, 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 so many guys, uh, that are stars today, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, who will tell you that the time that they got with Jody Hamilton sitting at the Jody position, uh, before the matches started after between somewhere between catering and when the matches started, uh, was was were lessons. I know Scott Demore, who's the uh, vice president of Impact Wrestling, will tell will will tell you. And I think he did tell him uh, discuss this on our podcast that we had with him. That uh, you know Jody was such an influence in his life as well, uh, in his career as well. So um, a little nervous on this one, got to admit. Uh, but um, we're, we've got some questions. Uh, I, God, he has like fifty fifty years, sixty years of. Uh, uh, 60 years, I think, of um, of of memories of of of, of accomplishment. So uh, we're going to keep it, you know, brief, so that we don't. I don't want to go on for three hours with Jody. He's uh, retired and was generous enough to give us, uh, you know, 30, 45, 50 minutes of his time. But um, so I finally pulled the plug, and uh, we're going to interview Jody Hamilton, the masked assassin. Uh, if you have never heard of Jody Hamilton, uh, the masked assassin. I would definitely recommend uh, either putting this podcast on pause for a few minutes or uh, when you are done listening to it, be sure to go to YouTube and check out some of his work. One of the greatest promo guys in the business, one of the, one of, one of the scariest interviews in the business. He's a scary guy with the the, the black outfit and the, the black and yellow mask, gold mask, uh, of which I have an autographed assassin mask in my office right behind me as we speak uh, that I will always cherish. And um, uh, especially, and I'm going to talk to him about it, 
Google uh, or on YouTube, uh, El Santo, the assassin. If you put in El Santo, the assassin, it comes right up. I looked at it today. One of the greatest angles I've, I've ever seen. I saw it when it happened. I don't want to say live. I wasn't in the sportatorium in Tampa when they taped it on Wednesday morning, but I saw it that Saturday play out, and I was blown blown away by the angle, by the, the promo that followed, by the business they did afterwards. Uh, and, 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 you know, you, it's, it's, it's in angles like that that not only do you appreciate a guy like Jody Hamilton and the charisma of a Dusty Rhodes, but what Gordon Soley added to those angles is you can't even, you can't even there's no words. Uh, the subtleness and, and just watch the angle and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And he did this with so many angles and so many guys and talking about people that, uh, that helped others careers. Gordon Soley, uh, in, in one angle could, could, uh, the way he would react or one promo, the way he would react, uh, whether you were, he was back in a baby face or disgusted by a heel, uh, he can, uh, you know, make you some money for sure. And, uh, so uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, I really urge you to. Uh, one of the greatest angles of all time. Wasn't scripted. Obviously, they knew what was going on. Uh, but it was not scripted like today's wrestling. And uh, it was from the heart. And uh, good stuff. So El Santo, The Assassin. Be sure to Google it. I, 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 even if you are familiar with The Assassin, uh, for those of you who don't know, Jody went on to discover the power plant uh, in WCW. And uh, so really uh, work with WCW throughout all, all my time there till the very end and uh, just did so much for the business. So uh, looking forward to talking to him in just a moment. Uh, hey, want to thank you guys for I got a lot of feedback on the Rip Rogers interview. Um, uh, <laughs> Jerry Petock's laughing. I, you know those little uh, quick takes we do. The uh, the the what, what do you call those promos, Jerry? The quick fixes uh, that I uh, put on Twitter, that I repost on Twitter, little previews. Uh, I wanted Jerry to do one where he bleeped out like uh, uh, forty of the f bombs. Uh, you know, like so we could bleep out like every other word to try to create interest. Unfortunately, Twitter has rules about stuff like that. And Jerry also has a company to run. I'm not <laughs> with about another 25 podcasts that they have to put together each and every week. So uh, plus he just turned 40. Happy birthday. Jerry P. Tuck turning 40. I was at the party. A lot of fun from what I remember. No, I remember everything. And um, so uh, so we didn't get to put out a, a, a preview like that, but uh uh, it's, you know, the, hey, the one thing about uh, Rip Rogers is he's not politically correct and he's not af say, afraid to say what he feels uh, and he doesn't care who likes it, doesn't like it. Uh, thinking about having Rip on like to do maybe a 10, 15 minute segment every month or so. Uh, trying to think of something nifty to call it, maybe uh, anti-PC or no uh, politically incorrect with Rip Rogers. I don't know if you have any ideas. uh uh, hit me up on Twitter at David Penzer or at Penzer Ringside. If you have any ideas, A, if you'd like to see a, a monthly segment with Rip uh, for about 10, 15 minutes, you know, we could take questions from you guys and let him answer it. Uh, his thoughts on current day, uh, sort of kind of like we did with Disco a couple of months ago. And um, so uh, let me know what you think. And uh, let me know if you could come up with a good uh, name for a segment. Uh, if you come up with something, we'll find a way to uh, to send you some some WCW uh, uh, something from my collection as a as a thank you. If if you come up with a uh, a name that we end up using, we'll send you something uh, that's a collectible that uh, as as a thank you. So it's at David Penzer at Penzer Ringside. If you do not use social media, you could certainly hit us up. David Penzer at RadioInfluence.com. David Penzer at RadioInfluence.com. So here's an opportunity for somebody to come up with a segment name and uh, win some uh, something from my personal collection of WCW swag. So uh, so yeah, I didn't even think about it. I think I was going to do that, but you never know what's going to happen on City Ringside. Hey, hoping to have uh, Tessa Blanchard next week. Uh, uh, working out the details now. We certainly will have her in the lead-up to Slammiversary at some point. And, um, Interesting uh, third-generation wrestler, uh, not only as a grandfather uh, promoter in uh, Texas, but also a wrestler, Joe Blanchard, 
Of course, her father, Tully Blanchard, won the original Four Horsemen. And um, and, and, and interestingly enough, her stepfather uh, is Magnum T.A. So talk about her wrestling pedigree. And uh, she uh, had been flirting with uh, NXT but ended up in Impact Wrestling. And uh, they're having Slammiversary come up in a few weeks. And so we're going to have her on and uh, help promote Slammiversary, help, also helping in hoping to get Sanjay Dutt on, who's the uh, uh, creative behind uh, Impact Wrestling as well. So it's a little tease out there for you. We're hoping to have them on as we uh, creep up towards Slammiversary at the end of July. All right. I know I'm nervous about doing this, but I can't hold it off any longer because I'm babbling. Without further ado, please welcome my mentor, a man whom, without him, I could never have lived my dream, and I would never be on this podcast talking to you now. That is uh, absolutely sure. And also, not only that, not only, it's not, not only about me, uh, one of the greatest wrestlers and teachers uh, and heels of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to bring on City Ringside Jody Hamilton, the masked assassin. What a legendary career my guest this week has had. Throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, it's just unbelievable. Uh, Going to get to his career in just a moment, but uh, I want to introduce to you a man who uh, who embraced me in a business that had that I had no business being in, and uh, uh, not only was he one of my favorite wrestlers as a as a kid growing up, but uh, but he did so much for me and. Uh, so Jody Hamilton, the assassin, uh, welcome to City Ringside. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, ever since I've been doing this podcast, which is about a year now, I've wanted to have you on, but this is the first time I'm kind of nervous. It's sort of like interviewing your dad. <laughs> if well, you're... I'll try to put you at ease and, and get you <laughs> nice and relaxed so we can uh, go through this thing smoothly. No, you just, you know, it's funny. I speak to so many people. Scott Demore, who's a VP of Impact Wrestling now, and and I and I spoke to Rip Rogers. We had him on last week. What a uh, what a nutcase! But I uh, love him. And um, I speak to so many people who just talk about Bob Cook, who talk about how uh, how you you taught them so much, you know. Uh, and those aren't even the people you trained. Hell, those are just people that you sat around and and it, uh, you know just told stories and gave out knowledge. Uh, uh, so it's really amazing. I don't know if you realize it, and I'm not trying to kiss your ass, but I'm just being totally honest. So I'm I'm, I'm looked oh, over. Oh hell! I thought you were trying to kiss my ass. Well, you know I am too. <laughs> so so I, I I looked over your career, and God, you know, there's so much to talk about that I'm sort of overwhelmed. So instead of talking about, sort of instead of starting out about talking about your career, we're going to get to it in a minute. I'm going to talk about my career. Why the hell did you embrace? And I'm being honest. You don't have to kiss my ass. Why the hell did you, you know, Bob Roop asked you to do a favor for a friend of his who was a five foot six non-athletic uh, supposed ring announcer, and you could have kind of, you know, you, I know this business now. You could have, you know, done me a favor for a couple of weeks and never brought me back up and never had me book guys, and you didn't though. And I and and I'm I'm being honest when I say this because it's sort of why I was nervous to do the podcast. What, what did you see in me that nobody that that wasn't there? That you were, you know, took me in and allowed me to to learn from somebody like you who had been, uh, you know, done so many things for so many years. Well, you know, not when, to put, not to put do, you on not to put you on things, the spot, not to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no. When you do things as that starts out as a favor for other people, you're looking for reasons to shut it down, cut it off, make it as short and sweet as possible. And so on. Sure. But the more we were associated together, the more I saw your enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is something that that uh, I, I think is one of the command requirements for success in, uh, in any profession, but especially in ours. And... When I saw the enthusiasm that you had and everything that you did, and then uh, I saw the quality of uh, of your work uh, and so on, then uh, then I was I was more than eager and, and more than willing to uh, help you as much as I could. 
Well, I just want to say, I've told you before, but I want to say on the record on this podcast, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You were uh, instrumental in me living my dream and actually still continuing to be involved in a business that I love. So thank you. And um, But now I want to get to your amazing career. The one thing that, that fascinates me is not so much to what, what a career you've had, but how successful you were to start. 1958, May of 1958, at the age of 19 years old, you headlined, and I don't know if a lot, a lot of people know this. I know it's in your book, which I read uh, last year, which uh, I would uh, recommend uh, to anybody who uh, wants a history lesson of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s of pro wrestling. But you headlined Madison Square Garden with your brother versus Antonio Rocca and Miguel Perez at the 1958. That just blows my mind. Wondering, um, you know, speaking about being nervous for me doing this interview, how nervous were you headlining a, 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 a place I've never even gotten to announce, which is on my bucket list, uh, headlining at such a young age? I was too nervous to puke. <laughs> there you go. I'll never forget. As a matter of fact, my wife and I were were, were uh, sitting up the lake the other day, and we, we got to talking about my career and and so on. And, and this has always been one of the outstanding moments of my career, and I can remember it. And when I go back and remember it, sometimes I still get the chill bumps. Standing backstage behind the curtains in Madison Square, the old Madison Square Garden, right, surrounded by eighteen cops, with my brother, and I'm standing there. And when they put the spotlight on us and open those curtains, and those cops start moving forward, I was paralyzed. I imagine my legs would not move. Oh my God! And I said, "My God, what am I going to do?" And fortunately, one of the cops behind me uh, thought I was going to walk and take a step and everything, and he bumped into me and pushed me forward and forced me to walk. There you go. And then I managed to get to the ring, and when I'm standing in the ring, I'm shaking, and my legs are weak. And they're they're you, you, you heard the old expression. My legs felt like a bowl of jello. That's exactly what my legs felt like, a bowl of jello. And I was I was scared to death. And then right prior to the beginning of the match, they turned all the house lights on. And there we sit or stand in the middle of the ring. I'm surrounded by twenty thousand over better people. Or better than twenty thousand people, I should say. And that's damn near as many people as that was in my hometown when I grew up, you know. Wow. And I, I said to myself, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and I was just, like I say, I was paralyzed. And my brother, I evidently, I didn't show it because my brother had me start the match. Oh, my God. And I was fine. As soon as Argentina Rocco started the match for his team, and he came out and he threw one of them long looping kicks to the to the head and face that he was famous for, nearly knocked my lights out. And as soon as I as soon as I got hit like that, they were thinking I was okay the rest of the match. There you go. That's amazing. That just blows my mind. Uh, such instant success. Now, you know, a lot of times, and you know this from being a teacher and, and, and a booker, a lot of times when guys gain success so early in their career, you know, they have a hard time, uh, you know, the, the head, their head gets big, ego gets big. How were you able to control that? Because you went on and, and had such a long career uh, uh, in the Assassins and, and some other Gimmicks. How were you able to control that? As far as you know, not well, only not only did you gain success so early in your career, it was early, pretty early in life. You're still a kid. Yeah, I was like I say when I did that. Yeah, I made it my debut in the garden like that. Uh, I was 19 years old, and uh, I managed to keep things pretty much in focus because I had my brother looking out after me. And he made sure the little brother kept <laughs> kept everything in his proper perspective. 
And then later on, I teamed up with Tom, the greatest teacher. I mean, Tom taught me more than and I, I could, if Tom was still alive, I would say this to his face that I will ever for, be forever indebted to Tom for all the knowledge he instilled in me, uh, not only about life, but uh, about the wrestling business. Talking about so Tom, great teachers. Talking about Tom Ernesto, um, yeah. the original assassin along with you. Um, so I, I'm going to jump around here a little bit because, well, I, your time is valuable and I, you know, it would take day to get through everything that you you've done. But I, I've always, one of the things I've always been amazed about is as a student of the history of wrestling is the control that the, the major promotions had. Uh, and then those who were, um, who, who were brave enough to go against them, to go outlaw, as they say, I spoke to Rip Rogers last week about Angelo Poffo and his outlaw promotion. So uh, 1972, I know that uh, uh, Ray Gunkel passed uh, and um, his wife wanted to take over, just making a long story short. And I guess that the other members of the Georgia office didn't want uh, her to be involved or didn't want to give her her fair share. Uh, you could you could tell me if I went wrong in any of that. But tell me about that. And, and you went along with 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 Ann uh, and Tom. And I'm just, you know, tell me about that whole situation. Were you worried about getting blackballed? In hindsight, we know you ended up going right back to Georgia after the whole thing was done. But at the time, I know they were threatening to blackball everybody forever. That was a threat because, first of all, there wasn't that much of an allegiance between the promoters that swore all this blackball nonsense and everything because if they figure they could bring you in and, and draw money with you, and everything, they'd bring your ass in. You know, so uh, all that black ball stuff and everything, they used that, they threw that word out there uh, like a sword trying to keep everybody in line. And I didn't buy it and didn't give a damn anyway. But the thing about it is, uh, when Ray died, uh, the Florida office, which had a piece of, uh, and a couple other guys, which had a piece of the uh, territory, they just walked in and took over. Forget about Ann. She had nothing to do with it anymore. And they, uh, they weren't, they weren't even going to uh, recognize her, uh, inheritance from her husband or whatever. They were just going to take over and, and, uh, and do it. Well, Ann was a spunky woman, you know, boy, I mean, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't somebody that you were just going to boss around. And she said, well, the hell with you. I'll open up my own office. And, uh, and this is exactly what she did. Right downtown Atlanta. She opened up her office and offered Tom a deal to, to book. And when Tom went with her, I went with her too. You know, I said, well, I'm going where Tom goes. Plus, I don't, uh, I don't really care for the people from the Florida office. And uh, we had a hell of a war for a long time. And then uh, when they, uh, when uh, Jim Barnett was actually the uh, the peacemaker, he came in and bought everybody out, and became <laughs> the new peace the new promoter uh, for the Atlanta area. He bought uh, Florida's interest and he bought Ann's interest, and uh, I think Ann's still maintained a small percentage uh, of it, but. Uh, she had nothing to do with the intricate workings of the business. It was uh, Barnetta, and uh, that's 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 how that story went. Anyway, it takes balls back in those days to uh, to walk away, and uh, uh, you know, like you said, you didn't care. And uh, and, and having known you, uh, I know that you do it all over again if the same situation came up. Hey, uh, in the nineteen seventies and early eighties. You had two big rivals. You had a lot of rivals, but the two biggest ones were Dusty Rhodes, who was uh, arguably, other than Andre, maybe the greatest drawing card uh, at the time, and wrestling Mr. Wrestling Number Two, who was over huge in Georgia. Uh, maybe not other places like Dusty was, but was over huge in Georgia. Uh, tell me about working with those two. Did you have a preference uh, that enjoy working with one more than the other? Not really. Uh... Two completely different styles, because Mr. Uh, Mr. Wrestling Number Two, as we know Johnny Walker, 
he was a wrestler. He wrestled. So you knew that when you went up against him, you were going to you were going to go in there and you better have your your wrestling game sharp. Dusty, Dusty was a more uh, volatile guy. Uh, he didn't do as much wrestling as he did uh, punching, kicking, and showboating. You know, dancing. So you knew that uh, that that was going to be the major part of the match with him. But uh, both of them were. Oh, enjoy, what I, uh, yeah, yeah, I never, I never enjoyed getting punched and kicked, but uh, I always enjoyed being a part of a quality match, and I probably had as many quality matches with those guys as uh, I ever did with anybody else, other than possibly Dick Steinborn. Yeah, that's before that 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 name I know, but it's before my time. Um, so uh, one of the things you have in common with both Dusty and, and Wrestling Two is all three of you guys were great promos. Did the fact that they were such good promos as babyfaces did they uh, did, did that help feed uh, feed you to want to you know kind of like uh, you know that hey that was pretty good I'm going to one up you? Not really. I just uh, I never worried about how good or how bad anybody else was. I just wanted to do my thing, and I knew how to do mine. So uh, I'd go out and do mine, and mine might be completely different from, uh, than and totally unrelated to some of the things that they said or did. But uh, I was doing the things my way and let them do their, their way. So 1981, uh, the famous El Santo angle, speaking of promos, in championship wrestling from Florida. Um, whose idea was that? And uh, did you think back that, 35 years, did you think back then that 35 years later, so many people would still be bringing that angle up to you? Well, I've been told by many people that uh, are like wrestling historians that uh, that was one of the top five greatest angles uh, ever in the wrestling business. I agree. And uh, I can, uh, I can honestly, without hurting anyone else's feelings and everything, I can honestly sit back and say that I thought up the whole thing all by myself. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, I, watch, I, I watched that angle as a kid on Saturday morning at, at, at noon on, on Channel 6 uh, yeah. in, my, in South Florida, and uh, I'll never forget it. It's, and by the way, for those who may not ever seen it, because uh, there's some uh, fans that, that uh, listen to the podcast that are younger, uh, it is on YouTube. I watched it today. If you just uh, put in uh, the assassin El Santo, it comes right up. But uh, it's really, an, <laughs> really an amazing angle. Uh, uh, the stuff that you did, and 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 uh, I don't want to give too much of it away for those who haven't seen it. But and then you know, Gordon Soley's reactions were priceless as well. Uh, and, hey, it was easy for Dusty. He just had to sit around and sort of say thank you. But uh, so it's funny. Um, did you ever yeah. think, did you ever think though, 35 years later that people, you know, did you think at the time, God, this is a great angle or did you just think, Hey, I'm just going to draw some money. So, uh, let's do it. Nah, you were thinking of it for, for the moment, you know, back in those days, we never thought about, uh, hall of fames and, and, uh, being, uh, eulogized and, and so on, uh, uh, like, like is what's actually happening today in my career now, uh, and so on. You know, where I would, uh, I had my last match in what nineteen eighty nine. Haven't been, I haven't had a pair of tights on or been in the ring since, and yet uh, I'm still, I have, I'm still in demand. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm still doing personal appearances and everything. In fact, last Saturday I just I did a personal appearance. I'm doing another one this Saturday night, and uh, the following Saturday I got. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, for the next five Saturdays uh, I've got personal appearances lined up. That's awesome and, and well deserved as uh, as well. Hey, let me ask you about booking. You book different territories. Uh, did you have like certain? You know, there's a, I don't know if you know, there's a phrase right now about being a quote unquote Paul Heyman guy or like in TNA being a quote unquote Jeff Jarrett guy. It means that, you know, that people that are loyal, that he, 
that he go, or goes to, that those guys go to. When you were booking a territory and you were coming in, were there any Jody Hamilton go-to guys that you uh, were the first few guys that you thought to come in and, 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 and pop a territory? Well, to be real honest with you, I never, I, I wasn't blessed with that situation. The territory that I went in and took over as, as a booker and everything, and the talent was worn out. That's one of the reasons why they weren't drawing, and they expected me to come in and and, uh, and uh, wave the magic wand, and all of a sudden everybody has been rejuvenated, and the houses are, are full and, and so on. You know, It doesn't work that way. Generally what happens when a territory goes to pot, Carolinas, for instance, when the Carolinas dropped, the reason it had dropped is because they had the same faces in there for five or six straight years. I mean, they never changed. And then they brought in George Scott, and George Scott stopped here in Atlanta at my house then and had dinner. And we were talking, and I told him, I said, George, I said, the only way you're going to be successful in the Carolinas, I said, you got to get rid of all the old homesteaders, bring in brand new, fresh talent. He got rid of most of the old homesteaders, with the exception of one or two. He brought in fresh talent and popped the territory. The rest is history. And, of course, that, that applies everywhere. You know, everywhere that I was a booker and everything, you're you're going to be strapped with a few guys that are pets of the owner of the territories and so on. And since you're working for the owner, then you got to kind of walk around certain situations and them having a pet and wanting the pet to always be on the cards and always be in important matches on the cards and so on. But they expect you as the booker to draw big houses to boot, but using worn out talent. Well, you know, it, it it doesn't work that way. But by the same token, you manage to get around it with a little diplomacy and uh, uh, and so on. And I, I still maintain that uh, being a booker is the worst job <laughs> I have ever had. I thought you were going to say that one of the best experiences of your life. Come on, Jody. It is worse than experiences in real life. <laughs> It's one of the worst experiences I've ever had. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so, Especially when you're working for guys like Eddie Graham. Because wow. there was no way, uh, no way in hell you were ever going to please Eddie Graham. Because Eddie Graham, contrary to what a lot of people may have thought, Eddie Graham knew a lot about the business. But Eddie Graham thought that he knew more about the business than anybody else. So when you went in there to work for Eddie Graham, you were not given a free hand. So if you're not given a free hand to express and implement your ideas and so on, and you're having to filter in his thoughts, his ideas, into your angles and ideas and so on, then they're no longer your thoughts and your ideas. They're diluted. And that's what you had to contend with with uh with Eddie down there in, in Florida because he didn't he he hated the fact that he was burnt out as a booker and was going to keep his hand in it regardless wow was he as good a finish guy as as as, as lore has it oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah the only the only problem with him was too goddamn long right and certainly there was, there was, there was too many guys in the business couldn't go out there and remember uh, uh, goddamn long ass finish like that. Wow. So, um, so we all know in hindsight that WTBS, uh, the Superstation, changed the entire wrestling. Well, it actually changed the world. Uh, but let's just in terms of wrestling, it changed the business. I know you were around that uh, on on TBS for in in that era, and you're a smart guy. When did you get the sense that that? That, that everything was changing and that uh, people were watching, you know, on a national level and that that was going to change, you know, at, uh, the the way that the wrestling business moved forward? 
when did I get that idea that it, that everything in, in wrestling was going to change? Yeah. The day that Ted Turner announced that he was going on cable. Wow. And so because you, that, so that you, not only, see, that didn't make us a regional uh, wrestling program anymore. That made us a national program automatically. Right. Because TBS was going about everywhere at the time. Yeah, I mean, I watched, I watched it, and it was, it was, uh, you know, uh, must see viewing every uh, Saturday night. Uh, until yeah. I'd, I'd go to my friend's house because I didn't have cable yet. Um, was there any pushback from the other territories uh, at that point? Because uh, oh yeah, sure, yeah, they, they uh, some of them bitched about it and so on, you know. But uh, then they got smart and start supplementing their cards with uh, some of the guys that were over on the TV, and uh, they would they would uh, get a hold of this office and bring them in, book them, and, and uh, draw big money with them. Yeah, I remember Florida every six months or so would bring in Tommy Rich for a week or two back then when he was hot, yeah. off, the, hot, hot off the TV and uh, yeah. guys yeah. like you and wrestling too. Yeah. Hey, you know, I always wondered this, and I, I, I don't think I, you know, my memory's bad, but I don't think I ever asked you when we were shooting the, I don't even think I knew when, when you know, we were talking back in the WCW days, the assassin was so well known. I'm just wondering why, when you went to the and and several times when you went to continental territory, you uh, were not the assassin. You were the flame. Well, because they had allowed uh, they had allowed uh, two different two different teams and one one single to uh, be an assassin, uh, and I was going in the territory practically right on the heels of these guys who had been there so long or too long to start with. And they were imitations. So I wasn't going to go in there and, and, uh, try to revive, so to speak, uh, the name of the assassins. So I just said to hell with it. I'll change my gimmick completely and went out of the flame and, and, uh, I tossed the fire in the ring and all that crap. Was that sort of a challenge to you after all those decades to uh, to start something yeah, fresh? Yeah, you know, it was, it, was, it was a challenge. And it was something new and something that I liked, you know. And uh, I had a, I got a big kick out of doing it. Uh, on the fire. Yeah. <laughs> um, you had, uh, after, I, I know Tom Renesto will always be your, your favorite assassin partner, but you had several other uh, partners in different territories to... Most famous of which I think were Randy Colley, uh, Roger Smith, and then later on Hercules Hernandez. Um, do you have a favorite out of those three? Not really. I thought they were all good partners. They were all good guys. Uh, I uh, I have nothing but admiration and respect for all three guys. And I think that uh, they feel, you know, I think it's a mutual feeling. So, you know, and there again, I, I wouldn't, uh, I, w I wouldn't say that. Yeah, uh, one guy was uh, was my favorite over the other guy, or whatever. Because we were all, uh, we were all, we were successful. Every all three uh, guys that I had as, as partners were successful, and so on, and. Uh, I was uh, I was satisfied with uh, with their loyalty and devotion to the uh, to the team and the degree of success that we had uh, speaks for itself. So, in, uh, in what changed my life, uh, you went to WCW to work behind the scenes. I believe you had mentioned George Scott earlier going to Carolinas. I believe. It was George Scott who had brought you into WCW, correct? Yeah. What 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 were, did you originally hi, were hired? I know I know what what became, but were you originally hired to uh, to help book? Uh, yes. I was hired as an assistant booker. And how long did that? that I, didn't last. 
That only lasted that while, didn't last long. Only while George was there. You were able to hang on though and and did a lot of things, um, including booking the. Well, Go ahead. I uh, I had a lot of obstacles to overcome. A lot of guys were shooting at me, you know. And uh, when Flair took over, he had his own buddies and stuff that he wanted in there, and I was in the spot that he uh, had groomed uh, Art Anderson for, and so on. And and you know, there was there was a little bit of uh, rub there, but. Uh, uh, I, I hung in there, and and uh, and uh, Jim Hurd hired, and then George Scott uh, came in later on, and and so on, and then of course it was shortly after that that uh, there was the big merge, and then the merge caused the demise of of uh, WCW. Yeah, we're gonna get to that in a little bit. Uh... One of the things I know you were in charge of, because that's how I sort of got my in, was booking the enhancement talent. I, I was asking Rip Rogers uh, last week this question, but you're you're the expert, you know, since you were the one who was in charge of it. Um, you know, I, I tell the story about how I didn't realize that there was like a Rip Rogers in Ohio and there was a George South and Italian Stallion in the Carolinas and there was a Mike Jackson in Alabama and there was a little Jewish guy in Florida for a time. Uh, and, you know, you would tell us what you needed, and, and we'd bring up guys. Uh, now, the other guys, Stallion and, and George South and Rip, you know, they'd get a payday for working, too. I just got a little bit of, you know, uh, of, of a favor from the talent that I booked, and I think you all booked my rent, paid for my rental car. Was, was booking enhancement always done that way, where there was, like, different bookers in different areas that would organize it, or is that something that you came up with to keep it fresh? Uh, you know, let me say this. I, I more or less perfected it. It was done sporadically before, uh, before I did it. And the other thing about it is I know that, uh, just about everybody that preceded me used to take kickbacks from the guys that they booked and so on. I never took a dime from anybody. Whatever these guys made, they kept in their pockets. I figured that that was their hard-earned money. I didn't work in the ring for it, and they deserved whatever they made to uh, stay in their pocket. And that's that's why I allowed them to do it. I could certainly vouch for that. Um, so you start you, your task, either task or it was your idea to start the power plant and uh, and start a school. Who whose idea was that? Oh mine. It was your idea. Um, I was, my next question was, did you, did you enjoy teaching or booking more? But since booking was the worst job you ever had, you said, I think I have my answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so much for that question. Yeah. So, so you're much, uh, much, much more uh, happy as a teacher than you were as a booker. Uh, who's the most natural talent ever to come out of the power plant? The guy that just, uh, seemed to just go in and, and, and get it faster than anybody else. Oh God! That's, that's so many of them came through there. That was that was such phenomenal talent, and so on. It, it would be almost impossible because there was no nobody that was so outstanding in one area that uh, they would have to be my first choice. Everybody had their own their own ups and downs, and uh, uh, and some of them were great to start with in certain areas, weak in others. But everybody, everybody had good points and weak points. And most everybody was, oh, God, let me, uh, everybody, as far as I was concerned, I looked at them on an equal basis, regardless of how good they were or how damn bad they were. <laughs> and I, I, we, they sent some guys down there that literally, could not stick their finger in their uh, ear. We'll put it that way. I'll clean it up and put it that way. But uh, they had also some guys down there that were very talented guys, and I could I, I knew the difference between the talented guys and the uh, and the fly by nighters and the guys that that were full of shit. 
Did you? Yeah, well, I, I eliminated those guys in a hurry. Did you, when you when you uh, saw Bill Goldberg? Could you ever imagine that he'd become what he went on to be, or was that so who? Bill Goldberg? Yeah, we were doing TV in Florida, in uh, Orlando. Right, I remember. And uh, I was at the uh, at the monitor backstage, watching everything and 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 giving cues and stuff. And I saw Bill do that spear. And he did it for a high spot. So I told my son, who was refereeing one of the, during that night, that wasn't, wasn't refereeing that particular match, I said, I said, when Goldberg comes through the curtain, I said, tell him to stop by the desk here, and I want to talk to him. So when Goldberg came through, he came over the desk and everything, and I said, Bill, I said, I saw you do it, Spear. I said, that is one of the most devastating-looking moves I have seen in wrestling. I said, that needs to be your signature finish. Oh, no, I want to do the Brain Buster and everything. I said, all right, do the Brain Buster. I said, but every time that you do the Brain Buster, I said, your signature setup move has got to be the Spear. I said, and don't ever, ever, ever give anybody the Spear and then not give him the brain buster following her immediately. And he did that on the next uh, series of TV shows, and it was over instantly. I, I actually recall that, funny enough, and because I think I was sitting backstage helping you out and uh, running guys, and uh, not only do I recall it, you did that for so many people. I, I opened it saying that, and you did that, you know, so many little tidbits and words of advice that you would pull the guys over as they were coming through the curtain changed, you know, lives. And, uh, and, and I just uh, can't say what a giving, what a giving person that you were with your knowledge and your, your, your experience is amazing. Um, so WW, you mentioned WCW going out of business and I know because I would sit sometimes in your office in the power plant and I, and we would talk and we don't need to get into what we, we would talk about, but it was obvious that, a guy with, you know, 40 years in uh, the business, you know, that didn't, wasn't really allowed to offer much, uh, you know, as, as far as input. How, how helpless is that to watch the Titanic sink, knowing that you might be able to save it? Yeah, well, you know, I thought uh, I saw what was going to happen. I predicted what was going to happen to uh, WCW uh, when I still had uh, an office down uh, at the CNN Center. Everything went... They had two towers, the South Tower and the North Tower. Wrestling uh, office was in the South Tower. And the so-called elite of the executives was in the North Tower. And they turned their nose down. Even if they had to go rub elbows with the commoners in the South Tower, they found it quite distasteful. You know, and they were a bunch of assholes. And when they started taking over the business, which they knew absolutely nothing about, and they started appointing people to run the business, to run the wrestling business, and everything. That's when I predicted. I said, "Well, I said if it continues under these circumstances, and everything, I said we are doomed." And we were holding our own against WCW, uh, against uh, WWE. WWE for I forget exactly how many it was, which it was, but it was it was over a year that we had higher ratings than, uh, than Vince had. Right. So why would you change your format? If you're beating the pants off of, off of the opposition rating wise, why the hell would you change? And those idiots, they were complete idiots. And I hope I wish to God they were listening right now. Those idiots in the North Tower saw what was going on and sent orders to us in the South Tower. We had to start doing everything just like Vince was doing. They even went so damn far as to have me order a different color mat for the ring to match. Uh, New York. That's how stupid they were. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. 
I forgot you were in charge. Oh, yeah. of the, I, I forgot you were in charge of the ring crew. Yeah, you did a lot. Um, God bless guys like Pez and Klondike Bill and uh, uh, who uh, went out there and, and, and did the ring for you. Um, so 2005, um, uh, WWE enhancement started Deep South Wrestling. You started Deep South Wrestling as a uh, developmental territory. Uh, didn't last yeah. too long. Was it more like a a, a, a style of clash, a, a clash of styles? Sorry, uh, you know um, their corporate style versus uh, you know you 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 ran a almost a boot camp in, until these guys proved themselves. Well, first of all, my my big stickler was, and this is what I what I clashed with uh, Laurinaitis about. You, if you're going to be successful in the business, you can't you can't learn in the ring if you're so damn blowed up that you can't think. So I wanted everybody to be in shape. Right. So I was sending them through routines that I knew would get them in shape. You cannot get in wrestling shape lifting weights in a gym. It's impossible. You have to do the things to get in shape that you do in the ring. And what is that? Running the ropes, up and down, taking bumps, bing, the boom, the boom, and up and all around. And that's what I had the guys doing. And then I had them also doing squats to enhance their leg strength. And my God, I had a couple of guys that didn't like to do squats. And they ran the Laurinaitis and Laurinaitis ran to Vince and, oh, my God, you're trying to kill these guys, you know. And just a bunch, because they were all a bunch of pussy-ass dickwads <laughs> anyway. Well, I had, you know. I had to quit. The next question was, what went wrong with that relationship? But you answered that question for me, too. You're on a roll. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up. Um, you've been very, more than generous with your time. Uh, we, we started out the interview, uh, other than talking about me by talking about, uh, 1958, you headline Madison square garden, 19 years old. It's 58 years later. Uh, you've accomplished so much. Actually 60, 60. You've accomplished so much. What's, what's your pride? If you had to pick one, if you can't pick one, what's your proudest accomplishment in this business? You really want to know? I actually think I know, but, but, uh, but, but yes, I really want to know. What? I think you're going to say staying married all these years to a wonderful person. That's what I think you're you going to say. You got it. Am I right? You got it. You got it. <laughs> Do I win a prize? Nope. Um, that, that's that's what I thought you were going to say, and and I didn't want to get too personal with uh with your wonderful no, wife no, uh, you, and you bring her it. up. You got it. My most proud accomplishment is the fact that we got married January the second, nineteen sixteen. We're still happily married. That's awesome. I'll never forget, Jody. And you probably remember this too. You would never go to catering. Your wife would bring you these amazing looking lunches. Uh, yeah. And you'd sit yeah. at the gorilla position, the Jody position. And you'd, uh, first she'd, she'd make the salad with so many layers of all this stuff. And then she had some sort of lasagna or something. And, and I always told yeah. you, I always told you, your wife looked like one of the best cooks I ever saw. But I, I, I had a feeling you were going to say that. And hey, in a business like this, where, you know that that's that is a proud accomplishment that you've been together this long. Yeah. I congratulate you. Yeah. She's a wonderful woman. You're a great guy. I'm honored to have had you on. I do want to promote the book. Uh, it's the Man Behind the Mask by you and uh, written co-written by Scott Teal. Uh, I when I ordered it uh, last year or two years ago, I got it on um, uh, Amazon. So it is. Well, yeah, there's a revised edition of it now. Where he oh. added, uh, he added about. 30, 40 pages and uh, a, a whole bunch of new pictures and stuff. Anybody that uh, got the original book might want to consider uh, getting a revised edition. The Man Behind the Mask, the revised edition. I, I, I read the book. I, I recommend it. It's just a journey through uh, uh, ever-changing landscape of, of, of something that we all love called the wrestling business. Jody, thank you again for all you've done for me, all you've done for so many guys out there. That maybe don't get the opportunity to tell you and um, uh, say, give my best to your wonderful bride and uh, and uh, just uh, 
Really um, honored that you would come on this podcast. I feel honored that you uh, invited me. Wow, I want to thank Jody humbling to hear that, uh, that <laughs> humbling and thankful to hear that we had never discussed this before, I swear, to hear that uh, his original intention was to cut me off in a week or two, <laughs> just do the ba- the favor to Bob Roop and then blow me off. So uh, thank God that he saw the passion that I still have. And uh, so great to hear from him and to hear just a little bit of the stories that he has. And uh, I would definitely recommend uh, the Man Behind the Mask uh, by Jody and Scott Teal uh, on Amazon.com. You can get that or uh, you could Google it. And uh, I hope that if you haven't already, you will check out the El Santo Angle and maybe also some of the other work of the Mast Assassin. Uh, truly, truly one of the greatest heels, in my opinion, uh, in the history of professional wrestling. Humbling to uh, call him a friend and a mentor. So um, that's about it. As we mentioned earlier, hoping to get Tessa Blanchard for next week. Uh, if we confirm that, we will send out uh, a tweet and take your questions as well. Probably a lot of questions for a third-generation wrestler uh, like her. And uh, looking forward to a lot of positive things. Like I've been saying, we're uh, counting down to the one-year anniversary of City Ringside, and I'm humbled that uh, we're still rocking and rolling. Uh, If you haven't already, please download, please subscribe, please tell your friends and neighbors, spread the word. Uh, Hit me up on Twitter at David Penzer at Penzer Ringside. And hey, uh, be sure to uh, check out uh, at CWF Fan Fest on Twitter as well, at CWF Fan Fest. Talk a little bit about our Fan Fest we do twice a year down here in Tampa. Uh, in association with uh, CWF Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives Facebook page and uh, its founder, Barry Rose, who's an historian. And um, we got uh, the first non-WWE appearance together in November uh, of Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe. Talk about talk about guys who have history and stories to tell and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and amazing careers. Uh, also, Ron and Robert Fuller are going to be there as well. There are opportunities to have j- dinner with Pat and Jerry, uh, Q&A. Also, opportunities to do a 90-minute Q&A earlier in the day with Ron and Robert Fuller. We'll have more guests to announce. Uh, easy way just to follow it at CWF Fan Fest. Uh, and if you're on Facebook and uh, you're a fan of wrestling history, uh, you could go to CWF fa- uh, Archives. It's uh, one of the Facebook fan pages. Uh, you have to sign up and then you'll get approved. And uh, every single day, uh, its founder, Barry Rose, puts on results uh, from this day in championship wrestling from Florida history, all the way dating back to the 40s, all the way through the late 80s when the territory closed. So uh, it's a history lesson every single day that pops up in your Facebook feed if you like stuff like that. So I uh, appreciate you uh, tuning in. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you next week. As always, David Penzer, sitting ringside. Have a good one. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is an MMA report with Jason Floyd. Quick fix on Radio Influence. Hypothetically, say it's $100 million. No matter how many years it is, whether it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, however long the deal is, you know, look, this is, this is great news for Bellator. This is great news for, uh, I, I, I preface this, for, from the fight fan, it's great news that, hey, if we want to watch Bellator live, we're going to be able to watch them live. That, that, to me, is the great aspect of it. But the downside of this, Daniel is now, as a consumer of mixed martial arts, there is now another streaming service that we have to have to watch the fights that, in Bellator's case, would typically be on Paramount Network. Yeah. I, I Firstly, the idea of a stacked Bellator card, I'm not. I, I just don't believe every card's going to be stacked as we look ahead to the, the card this week, which it has a pretty awesome main event and a solid co-main event. But by goodness, we've been watching a lot of these Paramount Network shows and very few of them I would call stacked. So 
hey, if there's a world where Bellator is delivering that many quote-unquote stacked cards on, on this new streaming service, then I'm all for it. Man, that really hurts my pocketbook, though, uh, to lay down some more money for, for another streaming service because it seems as though if you want the complete Bellator experience – these cards that aren't on Paramount are going to be noteworthy uh, from how this is laid out. So that's kind of where it hurts the consumer. And uh, I just hope it's a reasonable price, Jason, just because we are, I mean, I have got so many streaming subscriptions, man, between Netflix and, and, uh, and my HBO go, eventually I'm going to have to subscribe to ESPN plus. I I just don't know how, how I'm going to make it work. But uh, if, if Bellator got a good chunk of change, which it seems like, or Viacom did, that's actually something that I would not have expected them uh, to be able to obtain because it is hard, I think, um, for any MMA promotion that isn't the UFC to get significant money to uh, to broadcast their fights. So that in and of itself, to me, is the big time win for Bellator. The MMA Report with Jason Floyd can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and RadioInfluence.com.